Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose a splendid new book in the broader field of Islamic studies and we chat with the author of that book. The relationship between class and religious piety represents a theme less explored in the study of modern Islam in general and in the study of South Asian Islam in particular. In her incredibly nimble and nuanced recent book, the new Pakistani middle class, Amara Maksud, lecturer in social anthropology at the University of Manchester, addresses this lokone by offering a fascinating narrative of the intersection of religion, class and piety among the urban Pakistani middle class. With a focus on the history and present of older and the new middle class communities in Lahore, this book charts with remarkable analytical precision the interaction of global and local politics, and the choreography of everyday religious life among the urban middle class in Pakistan. Theoretically sophisticated, historically grounded, and ethnographically vivacious, the new Pakistani middle class represents a groundbreaking contribution to the study of post-colonial Muslim societies, South Asian Islam, and to the anthropology of religion and Islam. In addition to its intellectual merits, this book also reads lyrically, making it eminently usable in undergraduate and graduate seminars on religion and class, urban studies, South Asian studies, Islamic studies, and anthropology. Here now is my conversation with Professor Amara Maksud. Hello, Amara. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? Uh, very good, Amara. Thank you so much for your time. As I was saying before, we went uh, uh, on air, so to say, uh, such a uh, thrilling uh, new book uh, on a context and topic about which uh, we don't know much. And you, your book has really added some tremendous density and, and some great theoretical interventions. Really look forward to this conversation. Thanks uh, so much. Amara, we have a tradition of new books in Islamic studies that our first question is always biographical. Uh, could you share with our listeners how you became a scholar interested in the study of Muslim societies, uh, Pakistan uh, specifically? Could you share with us uh, some sense of the journey of how you became a scholar? Of course. Um, I'd love to, particularly because I think it's a uh quite related to how I ended up writing the book that I did and some of the arguments that are there in the book. Um, I'm from Pakistan, um, and I grew up in Pakistan, in Lahore, in fact. And so much of my kind of career in academia began when I started doing my MPhil and then my PhD in anthropology at the University of Oxford. Um, And it was while doing my sort of anthropology degree, I was exposed to what I think is quite common Um, and really has to do with the politics of being an academic in the social sciences and Western Academy when you come from particular places. And I think this might be the case with the Muslim world in general, but it really 
um, comes out when you work on Pakistan or are you from Pakistan that people or, or there's sort of these generic questions that come out of um, the Western Academy, which are always related with security when it comes to Pakistan and irrespective of sort of what you might be interested in Pakistan or what your background might be. You're kind of always asked that question about how does Pakistan work or what's gone wrong. Um, and that's, it's, it's quite a problematic way to see Pakistan, but it also, I think, in a lot of ways, defines the kind of work that's done on Pakistan. And so initially, my interest in thinking about religious change really actually came from this kind of question that you keep getting asked in the West, so to speak, about Pakistan and about the Muslim world. Um, and I would use very much the narrative that I then write in the book, which is about a certain trajectory, political and historical trajectory in Pakistan with General Zia's martial law and how that led to a change, uh, a religious change in the country, which, um, which of course it did. Uh, but it also sort of became a narrative with how you explain all that's gone wrong with Pakistan. Um, and so that's actually what I did start off with. And I was really working with that narrative to understand what are these new religious practices that are prevalent in Pakistan and what do they tell us about this, exactly this kind of history. And it's only when I started doing my fieldwork that I realized that there are quite these intricate politics between how Pakistan is presented to the outside world, how certain visions of the country and the classes and groups that it comes from entangles with the gaze of the West, but also connections with the West. So so that's kind of like the history of how I came into this area and also the, the politics of what this book describes. So perhaps let's begin with a, uh, a question that would allow you to introduce uh, the book a bit to our listeners. Uh, could you uh, tell us a bit, Amara, about the overall goals and sort of the conceptual apparatus that sustains uh, this book. What is, you described, of course, the location is Lahore, but what kinds of uh, religious activities uh, that formed the focus of your ethnography? And one thing that I found especially fascinating and uh, truly novel of the, about this book is the way in which it focuses on the category of class as an important uh, variable. So as part of your introduction to this project, its key goals, its the location activities, if you could also comment a bit about that uh, category of class that that is so central to to your concerns sure so i mean it, it really just comes out of what i was explaining before that so when i started out this fieldwork i was really interested in the new religious practices that are found in lahore and what was dominant at that time was the shift towards quran schools or the kind of popularity of religious um study groups known as dars and uh, quran schools for women where parts of the Quran are translated and you understand them with meaning, which is quite different from the usual ways in which people grew up uh, reading the Quran, which was just in Arabic. Um, so those were the kind of locations and sorts of religious activities that I was focusing on. Um, but the kind of people that I was, I was talking to was the kind of wider milieu in which these practices were prevalent. Um, so it didn't necessarily have to be always people who were going um, to Quran schools or were part of religious study groups, but had often been part of it. And as I started working around in these circles, I noticed the question of class would come up, that who were these people themselves, but also how they talked about how others saw them. So initially it would always be this kind of... Um, 
general other that people would be saying, oh, you know, people think that we are backward is a word that women in Quran schools would often use. And when you kind of went into the dynamics of who were these people who thought of them as to be backwards, that's when class started to arrive as this um, sort of very important marker of how people not only saw themselves, but also how they were seeing what they were doing in relation to other classes. So that's how the category of class became key in the project. Now, there are two uh, major sort of groups that anchor your study, what you call the older middle class and the new urban middle class uh, in in Lahore. Uh, Could you describe to our listeners some key features of these two groups? Uh, What are the key characteristics that lend coherence to these two categories, which, as you mentioned, are flexible categories, of course, and and fluid. But but what sorts of histories have generated these two categories and and, um, uh, some key features of these two uh, groups of uh, people who anchor your study, if you could share a bit with us. Sure. So, I mean, if if you were to just look at this in like purely demographic or sociological backgrounds kind of terms, um, the old middle class in Lahore would compose of groups that were, um, that kind of were either established in the 1950s or 60s or sort of that was the kind of time when their mobility, their upward mobility really took place. So it composes largely of families that had, moved to Lahore or were at the time of partition um, linked in some way to the colonial government or the colonial public sphere, either as doctors or as in the um, or or in the bureaucracy itself. Um, and then it also includes these families who in the 50s and 60s were able to migrate from rural areas into Lahore and were then able to um, progress as a result of kind of government support that was there in this larger kind of modernization agenda. Um, And I want to be quite clear here that because we're talking about Lahore, which is part of Punjab, we're talking about a particular experience of the modernization program of the 1950s and 60s. It was quite fractured, we know, in the whole country. um, And it was also quite fractured and uneven within Punjab and in Lahore. But it's over here that we can really see the benefits of the kind of upward mobility that it had generated. Um, And again, you know, this is something where we can think about in terms of nostalgia that when now Ayub's time amongst this old middle class is kind of seen in this golden period when the country was going towards modernity. I don't think that was the case of how these families or how these people engaged with the state in the 50s and 60s when there was um, a lot of resentment about the kind of inequalities and problems. And in fact, a lot of them were against the state at the time. Um, So this is the kind of demographic that they come from or sociological background, whereas the new middle class tends to come from groups that have arrived in the city or have reached a certain path or, or have come onto a certain path of upward mobility in the late 1970s and 80s. But it's, like I say in the book and something that you also mentioned, it's quite difficult to think about them purely in these kind of terms of sociological backgrounds and demographics, because as is everywhere, class is often made or class identities made through the display of certain kinds of tastes, certain kinds of sensibilities, what Pierre Bourdieu has called habitus. And this kind of habitus of being old middle class, I think in Lahore is really established through participating in a certain kind of nostalgia for the past. So participating in this nostalgia for the 1950s and 60s when Pakistan was on a path to modernity um, 
And in that kind of nostalgia, there's an inherent kind of dislike of groups that have come after that kind of time and therefore don't participate in that same kind of vision of the future or vision of modern life. Let's focus a bit on this or the older middle class uh, for a moment. And this is something you already have touched on and talked about. But I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about this uh, category of uh, nostalgia uh, that you spoke about. Uh, so could you share with our listeners a bit, especially listeners who may not be as familiar with the Pakistani context and the whole sort of period of Ayub and modernization? Um, how does this nostalgia work in the uh, social imaginaries of this older middle class of how you make a very interesting point about how it relates not only to an ideal past, but also a certain normative uh, vision of uh, what the future should look like. So so how does nostalgia figure into your ethnography? And uh, what are some of the ways in which nostalgia plays out among uh, members of this older middle class uh, that you examine? Perhaps you could elaborate a bit on this on this category. Sure. Um and so, like I said, this nostalgia for the modern, I mean, we, we know from a lot of sort of social scientific work in general that nostalgia is part and parcel of modernity, right? Like, in fact, it's a symptom of modernity to have this nostalgia for the past. But in this particular case, when I talk about nostalgia, I talk about a particular past, particular nostalgia for a particular time in Pakistan's history. And that time in Pakistan's history was off the late 1950s and 60s, a time when General Ayub Khan was in power. And like a lot of other countries in the post-colonial world, Pakistan was involved in a program of modernization. And the kind of nostalgia that exists around it now is through images of what that past was like. And so um, in the book, I talk a lot about there are all these discussions about the place Pakistan had in the international world in terms of different modernist architectures were coming into Pakistan to design different national buildings, again, which was quite a thwarted political issue about identity. And there were contestations of identity involved even at that time about this. But it's now remembered as a time that Pakistan had a place in the international world. There's also kind of ideas about the kind of, you know, Eva Gardner came to Lahore at the time in the 1960s and she stayed in a hotel in Lahore. And so it's, it's imagining that kind of internationalism of the time as a sign of the time that Pakistan wasn't the kind of black sheep of the international community that it is now and it was seen as a nation that was on its way to progress. And that this involved a certain kind of urban milieu, but also this urban bourgeois population that was seen as kind of heralding Pakistan into that modern time. Um, and so the way that, and, and, and we know from, and, and this is what I was saying previously, and that we know that Ayub Khan's time was particularly problematic for for the kind of inequalities that were created, the ethnic differences that were created, and many of the policies that uh that, that were instituted at the time ultimately led to the separation of Bangladesh in 1971, for instance, but it also involved a clampdown, as we know from a lot of recent books on Pakistan, about the left, but also letting religion again play a role in legitimizing authority. And so we see that time to be quite problematic, but what we see in the present when it comes to creating differences between the old middle class and new middle class, that kind of nostalgia for, oh, that was a time when the urban public sphere had particular kinds of people with a certain kind of mannerism and comportment. Um, that's, that sort of nostalgia now uh, really figures in contemporary class politics. And one of the things about this nostalgia is that 
and and you know, I just sort of want to go into why it became important in my ethnography, if that's if that's okay with you right now. Um, one of the reasons why this nostalgia for the past became such an important part of my ethnography was that when I started doing field work and beyond the kind of groups that I was working with, when you kind of think about um, activists and people who kind of represent Pakistan or speak for Lahore and talk about the intelligentsia as well in this particular kind of group, um, there's a lot of nostalgia for the past, right? And it's understandable why when people talk about what's happened to Pakistan and Pakistanis themselves try to comprehend the kind of recent, the violence in recent decades and how to make sense of it. It's true that it evokes a certain nostalgia and it's true that these things were not there in the past. Um, but in this kind of retelling of the story, something happens and that is that um, in general, when, when people are trying to look at the past and say, you know, that used to be a great time when you think about the 1950s and 60s, um, and you compare it with the current period, in the current period, then what you find is that the general increased or visible signs of religiosity in Pakistan, so women wearing hijabs or men having beards, and, and you know, these are people who now occupy the urban milieu as well, and they go to what are middle class and modern schools and go to university, and so sort of in the modernization narrative are considered to be on that path towards a certain kind of modernity, but show visible symbols of religiosity. Um, what happens is that those people are lumped together with the wider history of violence that's been that's been experienced within Pakistan and the connection between what's happened in terms of religious violence in the country and these people who exhibit or are, are visibly religious, the connection between them or seeing them together, it's it's kind of their connections are assumed as given. And it means that it's, there's a marginalization of all groups and all people who are seen as religious, uh, irrespective of how they might relate to, say, the religious violence in the country, whether those sort of connections are obvious or they're not obvious. And I think that this relates to the nostalgia because is when you talk about this nostalgic past and vision for modernity, it is one in which religion did not have have a place in the urban public sphere in the same way. And there was kind of meant to be this assumption that people are Muslim, but they're modern and they're Muslim in a particular kind of way. And there wasn't this kind of space for this increased religiosity. Um, and so in this case, what nostalgia is then doing is that it's giving us this very normative image of modernity and the modern public space and what things out ought to be. And in that sense, it's very much about the present. It's about certain groups saying this is what a modern public sphere should look like and other groups not fitting into that model because they don't display those particular signs or they display other kinds of signs of religiosity. And then they get linked to a particular history of violence and what's happened in Pakistan. So that's, that's how nostalgia as a normative category or as a normative image of modernity ends up featuring within my ethnography. Terrific. Uh, let's perhaps now move to the new middle class that you spent so much time uh, uh, examining uh, in this book. And you really do a very um, close and deeply textured ethnography of the practices of uh, piety uh, in uh, the, uh, this urban uh, landscape. Uh, and you make a very fascinating argument, which is that, you know, these practices of rationalizing religion in a particular manner that you see among the new middle class, this represents not the disenchantment of religion, which is the, often the kind of frame, framing that is done, but rather a kind of an enchantment. Um, 
I was I was very struck by this argument. I was wondering if you could explain a bit the vectors of this somewhat counterintuitive argument that that you you make uh, rather impressively. Uh, so if you could speak a bit about these rationalizing practices and why why you read them as a form of uh, enchantment rather than disenchantment, if you could share with us a bit about that. Sure. So one of the points that I've I've made in the book about the kinds of religious practices and ways of thinking about religion that are prevalent in the new middle class um, involve a certain process of rationalization, right? And I explain that process of rationalization to say that, you know, there's there's great emphasis on showing the increasing relevance or, or the the continuing relevance of Islam and Islamic practices in everyday life. And that includes then sort of talking about for instance, if you're talking about the ablutions that happened before prayer, what we'd call vazu, um, there's a lot of discussion about vazu is also something that's quite hygienic, and it helps from the it helps the from it 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 helps in the prevention of diseases, um, and and so sort of arguments like this are often made to where you give the relevance in relation to sort of modern science or medicine of certain Islamic practices, but you all, and so in that sense, a lot of this represents a certain move towards rationalization but also there's all, what is also uh, noticeable is that in the need to align yourself or make islam seem relevant to modern life there's also a playing down or looking down upon and we know this from 19th century reformist movements such as the deobandi movement as well that there's a there's a turning away from what are considered to be superstitious practices or popular um, practices and what is interesting is that that is also done through showing the irrationality of those practices and show that you know there's no rationality behind them. So there there are certain kind of shifts towards this kind of rationalization. But one of the points that I and, and so in relation to that I kind of make two points and one of them is that this is not a straightforward process. So you see some kind of signs of rationalization. You see shifts towards certain kinds of Islamic practices, but these shifts are not constant, right? And they're not constant because these things are a source of everyday discussion and debate, and people are not always, people don't always follow these straight um, forward, single-headed trajectories towards certain kinds of religious practices and religiosity. So there's constant movement back and forth in different directions. So we can't talk about any clear-cut direction in, in any case. So so even, you know, when they say, oh, this represents this whole move from being Bareilvi or being Diobandi to being Wahhabi or trying to think about it in terms of these kind of very demarcated shifts between different sects, you, you, you can't say that because there are no kind of straightforward processes. These things are up to constant negotiations. They, they depend on the time of life a person is in, how their own thinking changes over time, how it relates to how their family views the, the Islamic practices that they're following. So that's kind of one thing that I say in relation to rationalization. But the other thing is, and that I think relates more directly to the question that you had asked, which was about whether we can see a certain, I mean, the, the kind of general thinking behind this, if we follow the kind of Weberian line, was that ultimately rationalization leads to a certain disenchantment of religion, right? That there's, um, and I argue that actually this kind of whole fascination with rationalizing Islam, but also about linking it or showing its continuous relevance to modern science leads to its own kinds of enchantment. And here, I, I, 
I think a lot and I, I work with a lot of people who are completely fascinated by um, the linkages between, for instance, what is written in the Quran and um, what now people are discovering in terms of scientists are discovering with in, in terms of modern scientific discoveries or in medicine or in physics or so on. And so there's in the desire to kind of show that Islam is still very relevant and the Quran is still very relevant for modern life. Um, a process happens that I've described in the book is overstanding, right? It's not only that people are trying to understand the world through the Quran, they try to overstand it. And in this process of overstanding, when Islam is seen to hold the kind of answer to all kinds of things, you see certain kinds of enchantment happening, forms of enchantment or enchanted thinking happening against surrounding science and the way in which the Quran has predicted scientific discoveries, for instance. So, so you know, the popularity of people like Zakir Naik in Pakistan, particularly it explains or shows the kind of enchantment that exists alongside this this move towards rationalization at the same time. Let us uh, perhaps uh, move to uh, another theme that has come up in our conversation, which is this anxiety that you also find among the new middle class to be recognized as properly modern and not as backward. And uh, you show in very... Uh, uh, minute ways how this impulse how this anxiety over overcoming uh, some uh, a certain kind of a backwardness plays out in everyday life and how it impacts uh, you know uh, forms of clothing and comportment uh, that connects not only uh, that, that is not only relevant to the local context of Pakistan but also connects it to the broader sort of global uh, trends that uh, a lot of these Pakistani Muslims from this new middle class see as uh, being operative in different parts of the world especially in western populations of Muslims. Uh, so could you speak a bit more about how this anxiety over overcoming a certain kind of a backwardness or being recognized as properly modern plays out in everyday life and how that connects the local to the global uh, sort of... So actually, I mean, you know, when we, when, I, when we were talking earlier about how class is such a key concept in my ethnography, and so I guess the, the bigger key concept is like the class anxieties that are prevalent in the ways in which people think about their own selves and their religious lives. Um, and in the kind of new middle class groups that I worked with, one of the things that really comes out in conversations, and like I had described right at the beginning, too, this this constant, um, the this this constant description of yourself as a negation of what others think of you, and I found that to be quite interesting, as if there was always this kind of outsider who was present who had to be convinced that the person who's talking is not backward or the modernity of that person. And so like I was giving in the example before, it would always work out in like, you know, people might think that wearing a hijab is pindu, which means backwards, but actually then they kind of go and show the rationality behind it and the kind of relevance of it and so on. And and this kind of, and, and, and talking like this, I think it, it, it first maps onto this kind of what is very much part of the post-colonial world, this kind of desire to move on or to become modern in which you do kind of take on these um, ideals about, you know, modernization in terms of tradition and modernity being backward and progressive and so on. And so these were, these were ideas that were implicated in the way people would talk about this other. But who this other that they're trying to convince of their modernity, that's where the local and global really intersect. And so on the one hand, the kind of other that they talk about would be 
the more established groups in society who see the sign of religiosity amongst the new middle class as an example of extremism or as a site example of them not being modern enough. But it plays out in terms of what I think are the global politics of being Muslim and the kind of anxieties that Muslims in the West face in terms of being problematic in Western ideas of a secular public sphere and how they're seen in relation to that. And these connections were kind of there in the way that a lot of new middle class um, groups do look at practices in the West through newspapers, through the internet, but also through the kind of chains of migration and their own connections through family members. Some of them have had experience of living abroad and over there have had experience of Islam being practiced in the West. And so the anxieties of being kind of Muslim in the kind of global sense or being Muslim in the US or being Muslim in, the, in Europe, although most of my informants knew people who were um, who had at some point migrated into the US. Those kind of anxieties then come back into local class politics as well, and they overlap with the anxiety that they feel about their own position within the local hierarchy. So that's where sort of the global and the local really intersect in terms of not just the anxiety you feel about whether you're seen as modern or not, but also about how um, the construction of the self in this case and self-representation really depends on this imagined outside audience, whether that's upper or established Lahori's or it's this kind of generic Western who's looking back at Muslims um, and how it, it sort of this imagined outside audience is, is central in constructing forms of self-representation that my informants were, were constantly involved in. So as, as a final question, Amara, uh, perhaps you could take a step back and if I could have you reflect a bit on uh, what you see as the central uh, conceptual contributions that uh, this book is making in the recent work that has been done in the anthropology of Islam, especially on works that have sought to interrogate similar processes of ethical cultivation among Muslim populations. And clearly you build on this literature, but also differ from it in interesting ways. But I was wondering if you could speak a bit about what you see as the, as the major uh, contributions and interventions that you're making in this field of uh, the anthropology of Islam. I mean, you're right, absolutely, in pointing out that the the kind of shift, the the dominant shift in anthropology of Islam has been on ethical self cultivation. Um, and then again, sort of the debates that are going on around ethical self-cultivation, um, I think that I make an inter intervention in, first of all, in, in these debates by including the element of class, um, which is surprising. I feel that when I read sort of ethnographies that I I have used a lot and I, and I, I really see as examples of work that I really want to emulate and work that I've really learned from and benefited from, they're... they're completely silent on, on class, even though you can read it in the ethnography or you can see it in places, but somehow it never comes out explicitly. Um, and so one of my interventions within thinking about ethical self-cultivation is to consider the element of class. And I think it's, it's particularly important to make this kind of intervention because the dominant trend in the anthropology of Islam as we have debates on ethical self-cultivation is 
to kind of problematize ethical self-cultivation, right? So, for instance, people talk about fragmentation because people have differing kinds of aspirations and views of the self, and that often gets in way of their ethical project projects. So you might have a vision of being a certain kind of Muslim, but whether you can become that Muslim, it's unclear, and you might have a lot of ambivalence and tensions and contradictions because you might also have other aspirations and other desires at the same time. And so, so of other influences working on you um, and the, the kind of idea that we talk about in that is fragmentation that because of these different kinds of aspirations you have a fragmentation of the self and fragmentation of your um, ethical goals um, and so first of all we don't see any discussion of class within that so I think I make an important intervention of including class but I also make an intervention and in not always thinking about the differing kinds of in, of influences that are involved in ethical self-cultivation or how people self-fashion themselves to always be leading to contradictions and tensions. They do. But at the same time, we can also see, which we do in my ethnography, where different kinds of ethical projects can come together. And so in my book, I present cases of where the ideals about class mobility or come together with certain religious ideals of self-cultivation. So I think that's sort of where my main intervention and contribution lies in the anthropology of Islam. So as we're coming to the end of our time, Amara, could you share with our listeners what's the, the next project of that you're thinking of working on? I'm actually sort of continuing with the kind of demographic focus. I'm still interested in middle class culture, but particularly with upwardly mobile middle class groups in Pakistan in urban areas. My focus at the moment has shifted to ideas on romantic love and intimacy and how they play out in terms of how people aspire for particular kinds of futures. Um, so very much linked to ideas about middle class life and mobility and class, but from the perspective of intimacy and love. And at the same time, I'm also interested in understanding again, through the lens of Pakistan, but perhaps comparing with other places, how religious differences play out in urban lives and in middle-class lives. The New Pakistani Middle Class by Amara Maksud, published by Harvard University Press in 2017. Uh, thank you so much, Amara, for this wonderful book and uh, for sh sharing your time and, and, and your thoughts about this book with us today. It was a real pleasure talking to you and learning uh, from you and your book. So thanks so much for this wonderful Thank you book. very much. It was a pleasure to speak to you. And for this conversation. So this was my conversation with Professor Amara Maksud about her brilliant new book, The New Pakistani Middle Class. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. And I also hope you will join us next time for another fresh episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep listening to your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies. Thank you so much.